Thank you. I always feel welcome when I come here. Tonight's Dharma talk. Many times when we think of the Dharma, we think of themes of lightness and letting go. Because many of us hold on too tight to things and our lives are very heavy. But there are times when there's another side of the Dharma that's also very useful. Learning how to hold on, learning what things should have weight in our lives. Um, Two events prompted me to think about this topic and speak about it tonight. One was recently reading a book, I don't know if you've seen it, it's called The Gate by Francois Bizot. He was a, a Frenchman studying in studying Buddhism in Cambodia in, in the late 60s and early 70s. And he was captured by the Khmer Rouge and imprisoned for three months in a little forest camp and was the only Westerner imprisoned by the Khmer Rouge to finally be released and live to tell about it. And then a few years later, he was in Phnom Penh when Phnom Penh fell to the Khmer Rouge, and he was the only Frenchman in town who knew Khmer language well enough to be the liaison person between the the Khmer Rouge and the French embassy. And he tells of his, in this book, he tells of his experiences watching Khmer society fall apart over the years as things changed. And then when the foreigners who were in Cambodia were seeking asylum in the French embassy. Many Cambodians themselves were seeking asylum in the French embassy. Um, He tells what life was like living in this compound for about a month or so before they were allowed out of the the country. And if you have a chance to read the book, it's an excellent book. It's very well written. Um, You get a very strong sense of what it's like to be in Southeast Asia. But you also get a very... um, harrowing sense of what it's like when great changes go through a society. In this particular case, it's a very negative change as society falls apart. Um, But many times the same problems happen when very positive changes go through the society. Things change a great deal. People find themselves in positions they weren't weren't in before. Um, Bizot himself says at one point in the book that after seeing the changes that the people underwent, and the way people would react to great changes in their lives. He said he no longer believed in people. He only believed in things, which is a chilling kind of thought. The idea being that you can never tell how someone is going to react when a situation changes in a great deal, whereas things are pretty reliable. A gate is a gate. In fact, that's the name of the book. He goes back years later, and the gate to the French embassy is still there. And he thinks about what it looks like now, and, and he goes back to the the school of uh, what is it? Um, school of uh, the French school for the extreme Orient, where he had been a director for a while, which is now a, an orphanage. And seeing how the place had changed, but the, you know the buildings were still there, the people had changed, but the buildings were still around. But it was the harrowing experience of seeing how people would change under circumstances like that. I tend to like to read books like this because I always wonder, in case you know, great changes happen in our society, how would I react? And I like to read about cases where people have reacted well in hopes that you know, I'll react well as well. Because that's, I think, one of the greatest sources of insecurity for all of us is not so much the changes that can happen outside, it's the question of how are we going to react? Can we trust ourselves to react in a way that we can feel you know, proud about and feel honorable about? 
So that was one inspiration for tonight's talk. The other inspiration, I don't know if you heard about it, in the middle of January, we had a very bad windstorm down in Southern California. Did the news ever reach up here? We're in the same state. Come on. <laughs> I know some people would rather not have it that way, but yes, we are the same state. Um, now we had probably the, one of the worst Santa Ana winds ever in the history of Southern California. And the monastery was situated in a position where we got the brunt of the storm. Um, lasted for three, three days. The last night, the winds got up to 100 miles per hour, blew for six hours. It was pretty harrowing. Of course, I didn't, wasn't able to sleep through it. Midnight to dawn, 100 hours per hour, there's this twi- tree that had fallen against my hut and just scraped back and forth, back and forth, back and forth all night long. About 4 a.m., I realized that, if it, hey, this is happening to my hut. It's happening to other spots in the monastery as well. So why not? And we had lost about 300 trees blown over. And um, some sheds were blown over. And you know, sort of gradually, we've been putting things back together again. But I noticed, you know, the things that didn't get blown over. One were the heavy things. Two were the things that were well-rooted. The leaves that form the sort of the basis. We live in an avocado orchard, and there's kind of a, a bed of leaves that keeps the trees alive. That was totally gone. And we found the leaves up. Pine needles were up under the shingles <laughs> of the buildings. Things were blown all over the place. Uh, trees were knocked down. But as I said, there were some things that didn't budge, and they were the heavy things and the well-rooted things. And maybe think about some Buddha's teachings on what's heavy and well-rooted in life and how important these things are. You might be interested to know that the Pali term for heavy, garu, G-A-R-U, also means respect. The things that have weight in your life, the things that you respect. And there's a traditional list of six, but the most important of the six is having respect for the training, respect for the practice of generosity, respect for the practice of virtue, respect for the practice of concentration, realizing that these things are the most important things in your life. These are the things you can depend on. These are the things that should have weight no matter what. The second teaching, which is the teachings on roots, they talk about the roots of skillful and unskillful actions in in your mind. The roots for unskillful actions are greed, aversion, and delusion. The roots for skillful actions are lack of greed, lack of aversion, lack of delusion. Um, and the, the word lack means, sounds like there's nothing there, but actually there is, a, there is a very firm root in the mind, which is a quality that is free from greed, free from aversion, free from delusion. These are the roots that you need in order to stay rooted when things change. And the traditional practices for dealing with these are generosity develops lack of greed, freedom from greed. Virtue develops freedom from aversion. And then meditation is what develops freedom from delusion. I'd like to talk a bit on how these things act as roots in our lives and why they are things that should have weight in our lives when things change. We learn about these in the West in a kind of backward way. Think about your first meditation retreat. You signed up to meditate. You go there, you find out you're going to be observing some precepts during the retreat. And then at the very end, you find that they expect you to be generous. Comes backwards. Traditionally, it starts the other way around. When people are first introduced to Buddhism, when they grow up in a Buddhist country, they start out with a practice of generosity. And this is one Thai custom you will see down at our monastery people bringing their children in, holding them up as the monks come past, they'll hold the child's hand as they put rice into the bowl. 
to teach the lesson that happiness comes from giving. Now, this goes against the grain for most of us when we're born. Left to our own devices, we would think that happiness comes from getting. But it's a very concerted effort that they have to teach the children happiness comes from giving. There is a happiness that comes from letting go, seeing other people benefiting from what you've given. Not only in material terms, but also in terms of your knowledge, in terms of your time, in terms of your energy. This develops very strong roots in the heart, and this nourishes good roots in the heart. Remember the trees in the monastery. It's not that the trees that fell over didn't have roots, but the roots were not strong. They were weak. Sometimes, in a couple of cases, we found out they were diseased. But it's the strong root of generosity that spreads out, that gives you a strong sense of rooting. Bizot, in his description of what was happening in the French embassy, noticed that it was, there were certain people who were just naturally generous. They got things and they shared as opposed to the other people who had the tendency to constantly demanding, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. And they would get what they would demand if they kept at it long enough. But the quality of what they got and the quality of their life in the, in the, in the compound was very different from that of the people who were, had the tendency to want to give, who were, easy, were ready to give. I noticed this in my training in Thailand. I lived in a fairly wealthy monastery outside of Bangkok for a couple months. And it was interesting. It was extremely well endowed. The monks, were, the monks were very stingy. There was very little sharing among the monks with one another. As opposed to when you go out in the forest and there's a, it's kind of a network of monks staying in the forest and they tend to share. You, know, you, have, you don't have much when you're out there. You get basic rice and some noodles and maybe some canned fish and this is what people live on for months. A little something extra comes your way, you share it with the other monks. And so I think it's an important quality that we try to develop that even though our, we're living in a very affluent society. We tend to figure, well, everybody else is, is doing pretty well. Realize that there are a lot of people out there who are not. And even if you don't have much to share materially, if you have things to share in terms of your wisdom, in, in terms of your, your knowledge, in terms of your time, there's a very strong sense of well-being that comes from that, a sense of self-esteem that you get from being in a position where you're giving. When I was living in Thailand, there are times when I'd be going past these tiny, tiny, tiny shacks. Usually it'd be a newlywed couple and they had just enough room in the shack for the two of them to lie there. And somebody would come running out of the shack with a little piece of you know, sausage or dried fish or something to put into my bowl. And you know, I realized that in the act of giving, it made them wealthy. You know, we look at them from our point of view and you want, to, you, know, you want to reach for your wallet and give them something. But the fact that they were in a position where they felt that they could give, that, that's a sign of wealth. It creates a, a feeling of wealth in the mind. And it's a very important quality. It's, there's, an, there's an exchange. You give something, you get the sense of wealth in return. And so this is a very strong root. That's a very wholesome and skillful root that needs developing in the mind at all times. From that, you work on the development of, of virtue. And virtue is this quality where you realize that you could do something that might be harmful, but you choose not to, in terms of what you might say, what you might um, do with someone else. You're in a position where, where you could do harm, but you decide that you really wouldn't want to, even if it is to your advantage. You have that sense of principle. And again, there's, there's a very strong sense of self-worth that comes along with that. If you decide that you're not going to lie under any circumstances at all, Someone comes up and offers you a million dollars to lie. You say, no, okay, your precept is worth more than a million dollars. You're carrying it around, nobody can steal it from you. 
it's a good kind of wealth to have inside. Um, and when you have this sense of well-being, then it's a lot easier to meditate. My very first time helping with a meditation retreat back here in the States, I was a translator for a John Suwat, a member of the Thai forest tradition who was invited, excuse me, to teach in Massachusetts. And after the third day of the retreat, he turned to me and said, you notice how grim these people are? And then you looked out across the, the, you know, the sea of faces meditating. It was like they all had nirvana or bust written across their foreheads. <laughs> You know, they could have gone to a Caribbean island, they could have gone someplace, but here they were sitting in the middle of that, that building up in Massachusetts, trying to squeeze as much as they could out of that one week of meditation. <clears throat> and I found his analysis was very interesting. He said, this has become because they're coming to the meditation without any other experience and other aspects of the Buddhist teachings. They don't have the background in generosity, they don't have the background in practicing in the precepts. And that means, one, they don't have the sense of trust in the Buddhist teachings that comes from having that kind of experience that, yes, you do gain happiness when you give things away. There is happiness that comes when you know that your, your, your virtues, your principles are priceless. You've learned that kind of happiness. Here you are being told to sit with your legs crossed and your eyes closed. And Well, you've, you may have had questions about the Buddhist teachings before, but you've learned from experience that you do get good results, so you're willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. At the same time, you're coming with a sense of your own self-worth. And you, ha- you come with certain habits, the habit of learning that there is a happiness that comes from letting go, both of material things, letting go of particular things that you would like to do and like to say. So now you're going to try letting go of things that you would like to think about for the day. It's a, it's a habit that builds on these more exterior things. And at the same time, you come to the meditation less with a sense of, you know, what can I get out of this, but what can I give? What can I give to the meditation that's going to give results? And there's a greater willingness to give extra effort, greater willingness to give more, be more intense in trying to practice and develop your alertness, develop your mindfulness. Willingness to give more patience so that you can put up with the pain. And so when you come with this background in, in these other skillful practices, it helps the meditation grow in a way that's less grim. There's more sense of joy. When I was in Thailand, many of the Thai people, you know, they, they found difficulties in meditation just like us. It's, you know, their, their legs are not attached to the bodies any differently from ours. And they have the same problems with the, with the sitting in, in, in half-lotus position. But they always seem to enjoy the, the practice a lot more. In fact, one time they asked me, why is it that you know, when Westerners come, they seem to be so gung-ho on meditating, where the Thais tend to be a little bit more laid back about the whole thing? and told them, well, that's because Westerners only have one lifetime to do all this. <laughs> and it's good that we have that sense of, um, this sense of non-complacency about the whole thing. The Thais do tend to be a little bit complacent sometimes. They say, well, if I don't do it this lifetime, maybe some lifetime down the road. But I think it's important that we reflect on how these aspects all help one another, and how it's important to have a grounding in, in generosity, a grounding in virtue, and a grounding in meditation, especially in the meditation, because it gives you resources from within that you know that don't have to depend on anything outside. Um, the traditional image that they have in the Pali Canon for change is strong wind blowing from the eight directions, and the eight directions symbolize what they call the, the, the ways of the world. There's gain, and then there's 
sort of material gain, and then there's loss of your material wealth. There's status, there's loss of status. There's praise, there's criticism. There's pleasure and there's pain. And these are the, the winds that come from the four cardinal and four, what are the other directions? Southeast, northwest, what are those directions called? They're not cardinal, what are they? Anyway, you've got eight directions, okay? <laughs> the winds that come from the eight directions. And the mind of a you know, good meditator is like a post that's buried. It's 16 feet long, and it's eight feet buried under the ground, eight feet coming up above the ground. It's well-grounded, it's well-rooted. And it doesn't shake because of the, the winds coming from their different directions. And you look around you, and some of the saddest things you see in human life are the ways people get blown around by change, either extreme gains, material gains, or extreme loss. Sudden gains in status, sudden loss of status. Praise can make people forget themselves and do things that are really horrible, as can criticism. They don't like the criticism, so they react violently. Um, pleasures and pains can make people do sorts of things that you know they would be embarrassed to have anybody find out about. Or if they feel that they've, they've deserved it because they have the status, they have the praise, then they forget themselves. In each case, it's because they allow their minds to be swayed by the external changes in their lives. In the case of someone whose roots are, are not well-grounded, whose roots are, are not well-nourished. And people who don't have the proper respect for you know, what's, you know, the principles of what's right, the principles of what's harm, harmless to other people. And so I think it's important as part of our Dharma practice that we give weight to these issues, give weight to the principle that our actions really do shape our lives and the quality of mind which, which we, with which we act that can be developed through the practice of generosity, through the virtues, concentration, is something that's going to be our security more than anything else. So I'd just like to have you think about this in the sense of, you know, even though Dharma, the Dharma is often a source of lightness and a source of teaching us how to let go of the things that weigh us down and that burden us, but there are also times when the, dar- the Dharma is something that gives us a grounding. It gives weight to our lives so we don't get blown away by the winds. It's something that gives us the roots that we need in order to learn how to trust ourselves. Because as I said, the biggest insecurity in life is not something that comes from outside. It's that fear that in difficult situations we won't be able to trust our own reactions. Bizot's story, where he talks about the incidents that happened in, um, in Cambodia. There, there was one incident in particular that I found very chilling. And, and it's interesting, you know, there was torture all around. The book, the book never goes into any descriptions of torture, but it does talk about people suddenly doing very unexpected things. There was a a Frenchman who had a Cambodian wife and Cambodian child who had taken asylum in the embassy. And the problem was he also had a wife back home, France. And the question is, what was he going to do with his Cambodian wife? And so they struggled for a long time in order to get her recognized as a French citizen by the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer Rouge wanted to take her out and who knows what they were planning to do. And so with a great deal of negotiating and finagling, they, they get her on the convoy going out of Phnom Penh. The very last night in Batambang, which is one day's ride from, from the Thai border, the Khmer Rouge finally relent and allow the Cambodian woman and child to be considered as French citizens. And they have a little celebration there. The next day they get to the bridge on the Thai border. 
And one of the Thai officials notices that there's a little irregularity in the list of names. And so turns to the Frenchman and asks, is this woman your wife? And he's silent. He refuses to answer. And Bizot comes up to him and says, yeah, come on, we did all this work together, your wife, why didn't you say yes? And he refuses to answer. And so the Khmer Rouge come up and drag her back. And, it, you, and the way the story is told, you had, no, you had no expectation that this was going to happen, that he was suddenly going to change his mind there on the bridge into Thailand. And I think that's one of the greatest insecurities of his life. You know, when are we going to change our minds suddenly in difficult situations? And it's through the training in the Dharma that we learn to gain this kind of trust that no matter what happens, you know, we're going to stick to our principles. We're going to hold firm to our roots. And when we have that kind of security, then we can face whatever changes can come our way. So those are my thoughts for the evening. Are there any questions, comments? Yes. I wondered if you might have some comments about the world events in the five days so far of war and how it might relate to the, the roots. I've been, ref- I've, been refusing, I've been refusing to look at the newspaper. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but I think it's, it's one of these cases where we have to nourish our roots to make sure that no matter what happens, that you know, the people around us are not going to suffer if anything major happens. And if we feel that we have the, the ability to express our generosity in ways that go beyond our immediate circle, that, that, you know, it's pretty much our choice. But it's something that we should look at as an act of generosity. But um, I must admit that my, um, I think there are certain people in power who've let their power go to their heads. And, it's, and that's, that's a dangerous thing. Yes? Of the 300 trees that blew over, were they all one type of tree? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have 4,000 avocado trees. And... If, assuming that there were 300 trees, 297 of the trees were avocado trees. We also had some enormous pine trees at the top of the hill. Um, and they had been very fast growing. We discovered, though, there was a problem that when we watered them, we hadn't watered them, the water hadn't spread out far enough, so the roots were all concentrated in just one spot. You probably anticipate where I'm going with my question. Yeah. Uh-huh. can develop their roots <laughs> intentionally. The trees just have to go where the water is. Let me go to the other side. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, as, I, as I remember um, Nam Pen, um, 25 years after the Khmer Rouge, um, what I remember surviving is not a gate, but mm-hmm. all of the torture equipment in mm-hmm. Slime 22, mm-hmm. uh, which is very heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, I guess, 
what I'm, what I'm asking is whether um, deep roots and heaviness may be less laden with value one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Your, your metaphor is yeah. Well, it's our choice as to what we give weight to is important. You know, if our material objects have weight in our lives, or our status in other people's eyes has weight in our lives, that's going to lean us in in a particular direction. And in terms of the Buddhist teachings, as I said, there's a list that they give of things that should have weight in our lives, and one is the triple gem. And the second one is having respect for what we would call heedfulness. In the sense, okay, realizing there are dangers in life and that you have to prepare. You can't wait to develop the good qualities in your mind only you know, when the Khmer Rouge are knocking at your door. At, at the end, you talked about keeping to your precepts or principles. Mm -hmm. Last summer in Southeast Asia, particularly in, in Vietnam and Cambodia, I was struck by the number of times um, when I became close to um, Vietnamese or Cambodians. They were willing to tell me what a silly American I was. And it was the same theme each time. Um, there were um, Western-generated presses, um, particularly in Phnom Penh, that were um, advocating the prosecution of the Khmer Rouge that were still kind of running the government. Mm -hmm. Sort of strong man behind the scenes, and the, the Western press was saying. You know, let's root them out. Let's let's make a conversion. <laughs> and the taxi drivers and the people that I would meet were much less engaged in that. They just you know, they they wanted to be left in peace to have a family and a little bit of money. And anything beyond that was um, silly from their point. Mm -hmm. You know, you put your head up mm -hmm. high enough that if you get knocked out, you get knocked off. So is that, so how, how, do you, how do you deal with precepts and principles? And well, you start with your own behavior and make sure that you're not going to harm anybody else, either through killing, stealing, lying, cheating, having illicit sex, taking alcohol. You start there. Make sure okay, I'm not going to harm anyone else. The problem is when you think about rooting out evil, and if you're rooting evil out of your own heart, that's one thing. You're rooting out evil in terms of other people. That's a very different process. And I think a lot of the, the lesson for many of the people in Cambodia was that was precisely what the Khmer Rouge said they were going to do. They were going to root out the evil in Cambodia. Look what happened. That's where the torture chambers came from. And so I think that's, it's, it's very important that everybody realizes, okay, if, if you're going to root out the evil in this world, that means everybody has to be rooted out. Because we've all got evil to some extent in our hearts. And so if you have to start saying, okay, I'm going to root it out of my heart first. That's safe. 
And if each person, my, uh, John Suat used to like to say, each of us has one person that we're really responsible for. You know, this one. And our problem is that we're not responsible for this person. We're going to be responsible for everybody else out there. This is why the world is such a mess. But if you, you know, people can learn how to internalize, okay, I want to work on this. One of the fascinating parts of the, about Bizot's book, and I really do recommend it very highly, because it's extremely well written, um, is his portrait of the person who was in charge of the prison camp where he was staying. Extremely idealistic person. Young math teacher who you know, saw the corruption in the old government, really wanted to start a new society where everybody would be working together for the good of the country and not sort of backbiting and harming each other. And it was because of his idealism, one, that Bizot was allowed to, to escape because this young man felt that this, he, Bizot had been caught on suspicion that he was a CIA agent. And after convincing the guy that, no, I was actually here to study Buddhism, and he could write out all the stuff he, the young man had, okay, explain, tell me what you've learned about Buddhism. And so he was filling notebooks of his observations and the things he'd been doing. And so on the basis of this, the young man went up and had to fight his superiors. Bizarre didn't know the details until years later, but he really had to fight his superiors to get this one guy out. So extremely idealistic young person. Bizarre finds out later, as he goes back to Phnom Penh, after the Khmer Rouge had been out, he goes to the, um, the main torture chambers outside of Phnom Penh. And by that time, they'd made a museum. And it was all the instruments of torture were left around, and they had pictures of the, the, some of the victims and pictures of some of the torturers. They had a picture of the person in charge of the torture. You know who it was? Our idealistic young man. And he said, at first he couldn't recognize him in the picture, but sure enough, he began to see the features and realize him. And the question was, well, what had happened in the intervening years that made turn that idealism into something that was so, so oppressive? So I think this sense of, you know, and it comes a lot of this idea, we've got to root out all the evil in society. And this is kind of the ultimate, you know, logical extension of that particular idea. Yeah. Um, talking about strong roots in Cambodia and Laos, I was there over Christmas, and the roots of the Dharma <coughs> were also very much ripped out of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. those areas. And... Uh, I was in Mongolia, and, and there's many beautiful wats there, mm-hmm. and, and they have the novice monks and the mm-hmm. monks, and it's very beautiful to look at. But then, when you really get to know what's going on, that they've lost all their teachers, mm-hmm. and uh, most of the monks, and whether they're novice or they decide to stay on, are there because they come from very poor parts. Mm-hmm. In the center of the country, and this is a way for them to get some sort of education mm-hmm. and, and try to uh, improve their lives. Um, but there's really no deep Dharma teachers. Mm-hmm. The abbots are maybe 20 years old, really haven't been taught themselves, and most of the main teachers have, have left. And um, I actually I tried to get to sponsor a novice monk to go to Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, but you couldn't get a visa, so the government is still kind of keeping. Are, are there any efforts that you know about to start to support bringing the Dharma back more richly to those areas? That well, there's, there's an organization in Bangkok that's trying to get Khmer Buddhist texts back into Cambodia, because uh, most of the texts were burned. And it turns out the best library of Cambodian Buddhist texts is in Bangkok right now. And so they're trying to copy it out and send it back. 
But it's very difficult when you don't have the teachers. A lot of the Cambodian monks who survived by going into Thailand were brought by the United Nations over here to the States. So they're ministering to the needs of the Cambodian community here. There's been some effort for to, to take some of them back, but you know, in a society that's been ripped up like that, it's very difficult. It's, it's going to be one of these. It's going to be a very long process. The Thais are kind of smug, and they have the idea that well, it was because Buddhism was so degenerate in Cambodia and Laos that this was able to happen. Um, my question is, well, is there any gen- is there any guarantee that it's not going to degenerate in, in Thailand as well? I mean, there's a lot of signs of problems in Thai, Thai Buddhism, too. Um, but I think it's, it's important that we don't identify Buddhism with the beautiful buildings and with the, and the structures, but you know, with the actual practice and you know, the roots that are in people's hearts. Um, one of the things that the Khmer Rouge were able to take advantage of was that they, they took orphans in, you know, people who were rootless, and gave them an identity, gave them a role. And, um, in a society that hadn't had its the roots torn out of it like that, and this this kind of thing doesn't happen. My concern is America. Where are our roots in America right now? And that's something we've got to work on here. Question. For those of us who are unfamiliar with your center, I'm wondering if if having a forest monastery, either in your case or or elsewhere in the world, if that is done for a particular reason, or does it color the types of meditation practice you do versus an urban center? Is there? Oh, I'm sure there's a big difference. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What in what sort of ways? Whew. The question was, how how does meditation in a in a, in a forest center different from meditation in an urban center? In other ways, that being in a forest center colors things. Um, Sitting and walking has a very different meaning out there. Um, when you walk, you might run into a rattlesnake, which you don't run into here, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I once had a meditator who'd come from the Cambridge Insight Center, and he'd been practicing in places like this all of his life. And after a day out under the trees, he came and complained. And he said, it's awfully noisy out here. <laughs> and I said, what noises? He says, well, you know, the wind and the leaves and the bugs and the leaves. <laughs> um, I think the main difference, of course, is that it's monastic and that there is a monastic community training there. And uh, Many of the Dharma teachings that don't fit as easily into lay life fit much better in, in a forest tradition. You know, this contemplation of the unattractiveness of the body is a very is an important theme. Um, contemplation of death is an important theme. There's a lot of learning to do without, and this is a lot of what the issues of a, of a monk's life are. You know, you're doing without looking normal. You're doing without you know, sex, food, afternoon, all these other things, and so that's a lot of a lot of the training goes there. Um, in terms of learning how to do without these things, and that, of course points you much more into the mind. If you're, if you're not going to get you know, immediate gratification outside, you start focusing it on your mind. You know, it's, I, I find it an ideal place to practice, but that's because I've gotten used to it. <laughs> but you should ask the people who've been there. <laughs> Where exactly is it? 
We're in, uh, about an hour north of San Diego, just to the west of Palomar, in a town called Valley Center. Valley Center? It's, um, it's, it's an area where there are a lot of Indian um, casinos now. <laughs> it used to be nice because there a lot of Indian reservations, but now there are a lot of Indian casinos. You have to run the gauntlet. You run the gauntlet. But, but fortunately, we're at the end of the road, and we're very we're separated from them. There's there's a lot of mountains around, and so we don't have to see their lights and things. Yes. I've just learned some about Buddhism being in this meditation group. Mm-hmm. I've always been curious. If, what's it? Uh, could you describe a little bit the practical aspects you see of people's lives who are Buddhists in Thailand? By that I mean, um, does the whole family meditate twice no, no, a day? No, 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 no. Or, uh, and there are those mm-hmm. who drift away and those who are very uh, faithful. Could you mm-hmm. just tell me a little bit about what it looks like? And I'm also curious, um, Thailand hasn't had so much war, but what happens when soldiers are pulled into these conflicts? Not mm-hmm. so much Cambodia, that was mm-hmm. so extreme, but what happens with their Buddhism? How do they deal with that when they're pulled into so the whole spectrum of society? Could you just describe it? Oh, I can, we could talk all night about this one. <laughs> 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 I you grow up in a, in a family that professes Buddhism. As I said, first thing you're taught is to be generous. And some people stop there. For them, Buddhism is a way of practicing generosity to get a good rebirth, wealthier the next time around. Um, some members of the family will be very strict about how they observe the precepts. Others will be strict about how they observe the precepts once a week. There was one family down the road from us, where the, where the father of the family, if you went on for alms round, Six o'clock in the morning, he was drunk already. Okay. He would come in religiously once a week, but they have, they have kind of a Sabbath. It's, the, it's on the full moon, new moon, and half moon days. And insist to be given the eight precepts. And for one day, he would be perfectly sober. And then go back to his normal ways the rest of the week. So, I mean, so you, get all kind, you get a full spectrum. Then you get individual members of the family who feel drawn to the practice, want to spend time in the monasteries. And the monasteries are not just for monks. They'll usually be places for lay people to come and stay as well. And sometimes it's maybe for three months out of the year or just a certain period of time. Or if you know the husband's arguing with the wife, the wife's arguing with the husband, they're out of the house, they go to the monastery, cool off. Um, the sons are usually required by the parents to ordain at least once. And many times young women will not marry a young man until he's been, mar- until he's been ordained. <coughs> they have a phrase in Thailand that the young man who hasn't been ordained is raw, where the one young man who's been ordained is cooked. <laughs> <laughs> and in a society, I actually saw a, a Thai mother cutting her teenage son's toenails and fingernails. I mean, the mothers pamper their sons horribly. And so if you're a young woman looking for a husband, you want someone who's been away from that influence for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) 
And occasionally you get a young man who's who's in there for the three-month stint and decides he actually likes being a monk. And at that point, the parents will decide if they have lots of children, they'll be happy that he's a monk. If there's only one or two sons, it's kind of funny, they want to pull him out. Um, If he decides he wants to be a forest monk, sometimes the family views it as a disaster because it's it's a dangerous life as a forest monk, or used to be. Um, As a forest monk, he'll be away. And I, well, I had one monk in particular whose, whose parents really wanted him to come back. They were doing everything they could. He had to go to another province for a while and just let things kind of cool down. But he's still ordained now as a forest monk. Um, so you get all kinds of various levels. As for the soldiers, many times for them, Buddhism is just that little amulet that's on their, on their chest that protects them. That, that's their identification. Although many times after a battle or after war, you get the soldiers coming back saying, you know, I committed a lot of bad karma. I want to make up for it. One of the most earnest meditators I knew in Thailand was a was an Air Force general who had fought in the, in the Korean War. And he was afraid that he was going to go to hell, so he wanted to meditate, make sure that didn't happen. So you get all kinds of different ways, you know, Buddhism permeates the life and the way diff- the different ways people react to it. We run out of time. Okay, well, thank you for coming and listening.